Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we heard from an expert on the furry subculture, chewed over the implications of TIFF districts in Chicago, and discussed the growing far-right movement across the globe. All this plus the Trump Diaries and a new Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for October 12, 2018. Buildings on Air spoke with David Merriman about a new look at TIFF districts in Chicago. The controversial funding process has changed some neighborhoods, but has also been derided as a slush fund for politicians. Merriman brings data to bear on the question with our own Kiefer Dunn. Buildings on Air broadcast live the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. What are TIF districts? <laughs> sure. Uh, glad to do that. Yeah. And so uh, I'm, I'm actually an economist, although I teach now in a Department of Public Administration at the University of Illinois. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've been interested in urban economic development, what governments can do to promote economic development, what's a good way to promote economic development, and sort of how lo- local governments function, that kind of thing. Um, I, I work with a group uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts called the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. And it was actually about five years ago. They they knew that I'd published a bunch of papers on uh, tax increment finance. And so they asked me to write sort of a grand general thing aimed at kind of legislators, general people, not really technical people, mm. um, to kind of, you know, what's the view of TIFF? And um, that that was a, it was really a challenging challenge it took a long time to do it um but um it's finally come out so i guess what is tax increment financing so the, the interesting thing about it is it's a it's a a way of taking some property tax revenue and putting it in a special pot and that special pot can only be used for development in that particular geographic area. And it's usually quite a small area. And I think one thing um, that's interesting about it, it's, it's based on the, the growth in the property value of that geographic area. So it's kind of, um, in some ways, it can be very invisible. Mm. You know, the, the overlying governments, the other governments, the school districts, the municipality, they get the same revenue that they got in the past except that it doesn't grow because there's no any growth in the property values. The money goes into this new special pot. Oh, uh, interesting. Right. So that, that makes sense. So, yeah, so, so the, the, yeah that, I've never thought about that very basic fact of TIF, that, that the rest of the kind of tax base stays the same, even though ostensibly the TIF district um, is, is, is growing that kind of community in, in all sorts of other ways that would presumably put increasing demands on schools and, and the other institutions that are being financed with regular, regular old property taxes. Right. And so, of course, this is a really big deal in Chicago and Cook County. I think uh, David Orr, the Cook County clerk, came out with the report uh, a few months ago, and I think he said it's something like a third of the property tax revenue in the city of Chicago. And it's, it's you know, an, an enormous number, which I won't quote because I'll forget. I think, about I think it, it was like $400 million or something, though, yeah, right? Yeah, that, that's like for it, the city, and the, the county yeah, was uh, like $600 million or something. I don't, yeah. know. I don't remember the exact <laughs> But just number. to give everyone an order of magnitude, uh, it, huge. <laughs> it, it's a lot of money, right? And yeah. it's like um, – you know, so we ought to be like, so why are we taking this money? There has to be a really good justification for taking this amount of money and moving it off into this special pot. Right. Right. And um, 
you know, I'm not sure we all always think about it that way in a kind of the broad way. And, yeah. I, and I should say, Chicago, I mean, one of the reasons that this has been a big issue for me is because I, I live in Chicago. And Chicago makes the most use of TIFF of, of almost anybody around the country. St. Louis also yeah. makes a lot. Of I, I have I have the quote pulled out. It's uh, Chicago used TIFF more than any big city in the United States, as shown in Table Five of the report. Chicago had as many TIFF districts, 149, as the other nine largest U.S. cities combined. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and here is the number. In in 2015 alone, Chicago collected Chicago TIFFs collected 461 million in property tax revenues. Uh-huh. Yeah, which would would have otherwise gone towards the general bucket of property tax collected, right? Right, yeah. right. So, I mean, you know, there, there's some debate. I mean, TIF advocates will say, well, no, 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 that we wouldn't have gotten that development without the TIF districts. Mm. And so, the, I mean, the real question for sort of in the scholarly work is to try and figure out how much of that is true, how much of this would have happened anyway, yeah. right? And, and I think you know, I'd spent a lot of time looking at everything that kind of, you know, had been written about TIFF in a really scientific way, everything yeah. that I could find. And, the, the you know, there's some debate in the literature, but the sort of the most recent studies and the best studies sort of suggest that, you know, most of the stuff would have happened anyway in right. one way or another. So, and, and the stuff being sort of private, private development that gets handed a kind of check from the, the TIFF bucket. Is that, is that how that works? I mean, well, that, one of the things is that it's very, very. Um, one of the big themes of yeah. my report is that there's a lack of transparency a lot of times mm. about how that money is spent exactly. So some money does more or less get handed to private developers. Some of the money goes to things that are much, perhaps benign, like oh, clearing the land or dealing with environmental hazards. Mm or that kind of thing. Some of the money even goes into parks or or even schools. Yeah. I, bu- I believe our beautiful sidewalks in front of the studio are uh, paid for with with TIF dollars, which which seems uh, it's it's a beautiful sidewalk. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So so yeah. one of, one of the things is you know and and actually Chicago is is been there's been a, a huge debate in Chicago about this. Of course, yeah. Chicago is actually pretty good at releasing the lots of data about TIFs now uh. compared to other big cities, but it's hard to put it all together. Yeah, right. And and um, you know. Uh, basically, it's it's going to take a lot of work to figure out exactly where that money is going, right? And it's different in different TIF districts. Yeah, and that's cause that's that's sort of you know my my curiosity, and I, and I have a certain kind of politic and approach that that sort of always colors my view of these projects, and you know which would meaning like you know I look at the the sidewalk and the kind of public works projects, and I'm like great <laughs> like public uh, investment in like in like local neighborhood spaces right. like cool, and then you know I see sort of like really as an architect I see like really crappy like mixed use buildings uh, that I know are going to be like garbage in 50 years uh, that that you know get a giant blank check from the city to kind of underwrite the the development to to stimulate development in a in a certain area and so um, you know, we, we've got one on 35th and Halstead here uh-huh. in the neighborhood that's kind of an atrocious building and has like a lot of empty storefronts all the time. And like, you know, like there are parts of it that work and like there's, the, I guess the apartments up there are kind of nice. Like, you know, so it's it's kind of a mixed bag, but you're like, ah, I don't know. Well, so, uh, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I think one yeah. of the big things is like, so who should make those decisions? Right. right? And a lot of times the, the, tif- the decisions about TIFF, they're as I understand it in Chicago, the yeah. way they're made is, you know, the 
there's an alderman, and right. the, the alderman is going to come to the Department of Development, the, the, the city's Department of Development, which, of course, is controlled by the mayor. And generally, that alderman didn't think up the idea in their own head, sure. right? They maybe have been approached by uh, a corporation or a business that wants that, or maybe they've been approached by the community. <laughs> but, you know, the, I guess the question is, what should be the public input on that? And also, from my point of view, you know, this the, the elected body that should make the decision is the city council. Yeah. Of course, we elect the mayor as well. But the, the city council gets kind of one shot at it. So, <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know, the, the department, the, the aldermen suggest that the Department of Development will kind of work with it and, and write up a proposal with the developer. And then the city council votes on it and says, yeah, up or down, and almost always up because, you know, the, each alderman wants... Yeah, they don't, they don't want to get their, their, their proposal rejected the next time around when it's their turn, right? Right, and, and because yeah. it's not... I mean, also, I think because it's not... That money isn't directly competing yeah. with other uses because mm, it's future money. I see, yeah. So, you know, I think the city council kind of has a responsibility to say, okay, if we're going to improve these things, then we ought to be looking at them on a regular basis or yeah. somebody ought to, yeah. somebody objective, somebody outside the process should be looking at these things on a regular basis. Yeah. Radio Free spoke to Barbara Staples, owner of Lemon Brat, about the furry subculture. Barb discussed how her business is one of Bridgeport's biggest, how animal costumes have gone mainstream, and what cosplay means to people. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. I'd like to introduce uh, Barb and Mike, who are sitting across from us. They are from Lemon Brat. If you haven't heard of Lemon Brat, which is not unusual, uh, it is, it is a niche uh, business, but it is, in fact, one of the biggest businesses of its kind, not only in the Midwest, but right here, of course, in Bridgeport. It's right down the street from us. Guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. We've, we've been wanting to get you on this show for, for quite a while. Could you, first of all, explain what you guys do? Because it's difficult uh, to explain it in a sense because you guys cover so much ground. You make clothing for cosplayers, mm -hmm. you make clothing for raves, and you make clothing for what's known as the furry culture and subculture as well. Uh, and it's fascinating. You know, you guys have a huge studio and you're pumping out tons of costumes. And I kind of like to dive right in and find out, first, first of all, how did you guys get involved in this in the first place? Um, I think just being nerds. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I mean, I cosplayed for a long time and I used to do mostly cosplay commissions. And then at one point I switched to um, doing like, uh, how could I make my life easier and therefore make stock that I would bring and sell at conventions, mostly anime, but some sci-fi. Okay. And then eventually we broke into the furry community with making fursuits and other um, like kind of rave and furry related accessories. And these are very different communities. I guess I should back up. I know what cosplay is, but if, for mm -hmm. listeners who don't, it means people who dress up in costumes. And it's not uh, they, they can dress up in anything, John, you were talking about stormtroopers uh, before, but you can you can kind of dress up as any character, whether it's a television character, a uh, character from yeah, a book. Yeah, video comic games, books. comic books, yeah. really whatever. 
and there is a, a burgeoning uh, convention scene. Uh, did it start at like the San Diego Comic Con, or has it been around before that? Um, Comic cons or comic conventions and sci-fi conventions have actually been around since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the San Diego Comic Con is just like the biggest, hugest, most like industry heavy one. So that's the one that gets all the public coverage and stuff. Okay. But there's like, oh, probably maybe a hundred different anime cons of varying sizes across oh, the United States and maybe about maybe 50 uh, furry conventions. So, yeah. Barb, you said you would bring stock to conventions. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, What was the main stock that you would bring? Is there a particular character or... Um, mostly we just, yeah, it's, we didn't really bring so much like, um, costumes of specific characters, but we would, we started out making like furry ears and tails, which has an appeal to both the furry market and to the anime crowd and like people that like, like rave clothing and stuff like that. And then we also made, um, or we still make hoodies, uh, that are animal themed and, um, kigurumi. These are these like big kind of dumpy Japanese onesie pajama things and they were like really they're still really trendy but they used to be like genuinely like mainstream trendy like a couple years ago like you could even get them at Urban Outfitters for a year so and what I guess what is the where did this this subculture come from I mean it I I'm kind of a nerd myself I collect comic books and Mm -hmm. I'm a big sci-fi guy but where did the it does seem to me there's a huge active cosplay community. Mm-hmm. Where what did this spring out of? Do you guys have a sense of that? Um, yeah, I think there. I mean, there's been a few different waves of like, so cosplay is um, kind of what like a combination of the word costume and play, and it comes from Japanese like nerd culture, and um, so. Anime was popular, had like a rush of popularity in the 80s, and then it kind of died out for a while in America. And then it got popular again in like early 2000s. And now it's it's quite commonplace, and you can see it on Cartoon Network, and, you know, a bunch of it gets translated and put on TV here now. And so with along with that came like this nerddom kind of culture of dressing up. And so anime conventions like in the early 2000s were quite small, and over the past like two decades they've gotten much more massive as the years go on and much more like kind of mainstream so with that has come the um the want for people to dress up and be able to like I don't know people dress up in costumes and meet up with their friends and find friends because they're wearing the same costume that you know they're somebody they see it you know what I'm trying to say for like photo shoots of people dressing up from the same series yeah exactly it's just like People, people find like-minded, like-minded people that way. Jamie, you mentioned uh, that we've we've talked about this before, and Logan would often remind people, especially around the conventions happening in Chicago, that cosplay does not equal consent. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, well, ask ask people if you want their picture, and don't be grabbing people's butts and stuff. You know. And that does, <laughs> that does happen at, at conventions, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, part of it is that the conventions have gotten a lot bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think, at least as far as anime conventions go, um, I would say they tend to skew a bit young, so like high school and maybe early college. And so these okay. are people that could in some way still be working out their social skills to some extent. Not that I want to right. 
categorize every paint paint a broad brush of like awkward nerds or anything like that but um yeah i think it's just as a culture kind of to we're learning as a culture both within nerdom and outside obviously that mm -hmm. uh we're learning more about concepts of consent like very willful consent as opposed to like well, she didn't specifically say no, right. <laughs> you know, so. Well, I think we had a whole uh, Supreme Court nomination process about that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so. It's been a painful few weeks. Yeah. It, you know, obviously you guys have a, have a big business here uh, making these costumes. One of the things that has struck me is, uh, first of all, I mean, <clears throat> I, I've been fascinated walking by your place for, for a number of years now, uh, looking at all the, the, the cloth and the fabric. Uh, I'm an amateur sewer, not a very good one, uh, but uh, I've really enjoyed that as kind of a hobby. So it was always thrilling to look through your windows and go, wow, these guys are really doing some some cool stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> you guys uh, say you have a, a fairly large staff now and you're pumping out a lot of this stuff. It brings to mind, um, as we've seen nerd culture kind of succeed at the movies and at the convention level, it's opened up avenues for folks like you to have what would appear to be thriving businesses. And that's kind of a, a new thing. And I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about how that's affected you guys. Um, I mean, it's been good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, I feel like it's really opened up a lot of avenues to um, like a lot of online sales and things of that nature. Like you have um, stores like Etsy now where you can advertise handmade goods and things mm -hmm. like that online where it's like, You've just had, um, I feel like it's, it's really opened people's horizons and like ability to, to actively search for these kinds of things and be able to find yeah. like whatever they're looking for online versus I, before when maybe it might not have been, might not have been as easy or you would be a lot more, a lot more limited on your options. And yeah. like, if you I were interested like, in something, it would just be a lot harder. Yeah. I do feel like it's way more socially acceptable now, like maybe within the past decade to be nerdy and not feel like you have to keep that away from everybody. Like it's, I don't know, like superhero movies are what the biggest summer blockbusters now and they've been so for a decade. And so that makes it okay for people to feel like they can be into their fandoms, whatever that may be. And I think that's, that's good for people. I don't know. I've, I feel like people really like to gravitate towards little subcultures and find like small little niches of things and like-minded people. So I think that's good. I think all subcultures, good, yay. <laughs> what are the, you know, you mentioned kind of, you know, whether it's Marvel or DC or mm -hmm. all the, the money that's being spent on this kind of 90s nostalgia mm -hmm. um, is, is massive and they're the largest, yeah. you know, uh, properties out there right now. Has that changed the scope of what people are buying online? Um, or is there something more specific that, that they're looking for? Um. It doesn't, I'm, I'm sure it does make a big difference. I, I don't know so much as it affects us. Um, I do know when I did more cosplay things that we were always affected by whatever was the new trend, like the new popular anime or the new popular video game or whatever. Or like we, I would get a surge for people requesting specific costumes related to a movie that's coming out during that summer or whatever. I mean, I guess but, sometimes like whatever the new, like most popular cartoon character that comes out like people want like a hoodie that resembles that character like a yeah, set of tails true. and ears that looks like very similar to it especially like when it comes around halloween time and things like that yeah like super uh, saiyan hoodies 
Uh, <laughs> That's so much. Can you imagine making the hair uh, uh, on a hoodie <laughs> like that? Uh, yeah, but there's um, there's like a Sanrio cartoon that came out on Netflix a few months back called Retsuko, and it's like about a little red panda girl. And so because of that, we've getting we've gotten like a huge surge over Halloween for like red panda ear and tail. So. Mm-hmm. Is there a yeah. particular time you mentioned cons that happen maybe in the summer uh, or in the spring? Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously Halloween. Is there a, a, a busier time that you find during the year? Um, all the time. No. That's great. Yeah. Spring and summer are the most convention heavy. And then we also have a very big Halloween. So we get like a mild break in November, December, January. But then again, we're also trying to build up stock so we don't run out once it hits rush season. So, yeah, I mean, like there's kind of a different season for like how busy we are during the year for conventions versus online sales because the two don't like they don't always equate to to be the same. Mm-hmm. Are, are uh, Internet sales the, the biggest part then of the business right now or? Um, it's like 50, 50, gotcha. I would say. Who's the best, um, consumer? Is it the fursuit people? Is it the cosplay people? Or? It's fursuit people. Yeah. So it's, um, it are, it's people that want to buy a fursona, uh, want to buy a fursuit of their own personal character, which is called a fursona, or some people just say OC for their original character. Um, so yeah, people spend a lot of time developing their own persona and putting a lot of themselves into it. And so then they're willing to pay, um, you know, really good money to have something that they understand is completely custom made for them. So um, when we do those, they are uh, completely custom patterned for that individual. So it's completely tailored to their body shape and everything. So it's a big project. So let's back up because you used a yeah. word fursona. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to get into the, the furry subculture, which frankly is something that John or I know nothing about. I, I have some issues with Omaha the cat dancer, and that's, that's really <laughs> oh, yeah. about it. Uh, what is a fursona? A uh, fursona is just um, a character mm-hmm. that an individual has that represents them in some capacity. And that, you know, it depends on if they want to translate that very straightforward or if they want it to be. Uh, you know, like a super version of themselves in some way. Um, but it is just their character as themselves as an anthropomorphic animal. So an animal that has human characteristics and traits. So that's usually bipedal. Sometimes they wear clothes. They're, you know, they talk and are sentient and are essentially people, but a different body shape. Gotcha. And like, but like kind of like a, a funny animals, so like in comic yeah. books. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. So what what is i guess what is what gave rise to this subculture what what is the attraction of this i can see it in a sense of i can see cosplay dressing up as like darth vader or whatever mm-hmm. you know um what brought rise to the idea of dressing up as what again i'm i'm dating myself here cuz i collect comic books but of dressing up <laughs> as as a funny animal character from the 1950s yeah um i don't know i mean i th- uh the furry fandom became, you know, like started in the early 80s. And so it's just been growing ever since. But um, I don't know, I think people, most furries, I would say, probably have a cartoon that they watched as a kid that has anthropomorphic animals. Um, So any like Looney Tunes, or there was a ton of shows in the like early 90s that were you know, animals, like there was a whole line of Disney stuff like Tailspin and all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I don't um, 
I think the appeal is that they just find those, that type of art style to be appealing to them. And then also, if you get to make yourself a character that is an animal and you get to have cool animal traits, <laughs> and you also get to play around with concepts of like kind of detaching from the rest of your life in a way. You know, you get to play around with other yourself as another person and kind of explore yourself through that, if What's, that makes sense. Is it common for people to have um, an accompanying furry head or do they use their own um, facial features sometimes? Um, most people will wear a fursuit head that has like fake big cartoony eyeballs. There is occasionally people that wear really um, like tight fitting masks where they just have eye holes and they, they use their own eyes just depends there's a bunch of different um there's a bunch of different kind of aesthetics within the community like some people like really really realistic looking characters and some people you can tell like you know when they're not going to furry cons they're going to rent fairs and then there's other people that you can tell they all their their characters look very anime influenced and then some of them look very like american cartoons influenced so the what what is the kind of um window that someone might spend on a fursona? Um, when people are buying fursuits, um, they could get a partial fursuit that um, is just like head, paws, and tail, and that's usually a thousand to two thousand, but then if they're buying a full body suit, they're spending usually about a minimum of 2500 We have had some suits that have been as much as 7000 and those are really highly detailed. They have like all kinds of spots and stripes and uh, wings and horns and stuff like that. So it, this stuff's not cheap is what you're saying. No, it's not. And it all, they're all custom made too. So that's why the price is so high is that they have to be custom patterned. Right. So Literally, that's why I mean you, you refer to it as a first suit. Yeah, I mean mm -hmm. it's like a, a tailored suit. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Right. What is, is there? Uh, that does that term come from? I mean, that's a proper term, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, that that's how long does the process take? Do you actually measure the people in person? Is this? We have them send us what's called a duct tape dummy, which is um, they have to have some friends who are willing to cover them in duct tape and then <laughs> and cut them and, out and not of just the like loosely cover them in duct tape they have to be yeah, friends who tight. are familiar enough with them that they're willing to wrap them tightly in duct tape yeah and then we cut they they cut them out of that duct tape shell and send it to us so we just tape up the cuts and can stuff it and then we have their body form oh, wow. to work okay. with so it's it's pretty easy but you can also tell when their friends aren't really that close like mm -hmm. sometimes <laughs> we've gotten uh duct tape dummies and the crotch is like very low i can tell like their torso <clears throat> torso is weirdly long and i'm like your friends did not want to get up in your crotch and <laughs> get that tape in there <laughs> Hey, Jess, ah, what's, uh, Jesus, what's cooking? Kyle, how did you get in here? The usual way. I jimmy your window next to the fire escape. You really got to get that fixed. What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean, the usual way? Come on, Jess, you know the saying, my castle is your commode or something like that. That is not how that saying goes, Kyle, but whatever. If you're here, you can help out. Hand me that tray of vegetables. Like, what are you doing exactly? 
Oh, Shanna's been feeling bad, so I'm making her some food. Ah, geez, that's too bad. Yeah, I'm hoping some of her favorites will cheer up. Cheer up? Uh, hand me the salt. Oh, I know how to do that stuff. All the guys down at the viaduct say I'm a regular Louie Anderson. Who? <laughs> oh, Jess. Just watch and learn. Watch and learn. Uh, Kyle, um, what are you doing here? Just tells me you're sick, so I got something that's gonna cheer you up, but we only got a few minutes before the man comes. What man? And what the hell is that? Just come here with me. Kyle, I, I don't really have the energy for games. It's the ride from the carnival at St. Babs. It's a huge sensation. Oh, no, Kyle. I'm, I'm super nauseous. I don't... Wow, Kyle, that did not go as planned. Yeah, I'll say so. I never seen so much puke outside of a preschool. Kyle, what were you thinking? It's called the Vomit Comet. Sick people don't want to be thrown 50 feet in the air upside down over and over again. Jeez, Jess, I was just trying to cheer up Shanna. Well, why don't you just get her something off the internet like normal people Hold do? on, the internet? Yeah, Kyle. The internet. I got you. Who is it? Oh, oh no, Kyle. No, no, no. No more rides. Now listen. I'm sorry about that. So I got you something else. I hope it makes you feel better. A baseball? That's... Odd. Yeah, I got it off the internet. Of course, now I'm barred from Sox Park, but hey, it's a small price to pay. Uh, how did buying me a baseball get you barred from the ballpark? I didn't buy nothing, I told you. I got it off the internet. I climbed in there, took three of them little lushes to haul me back out, too. You think the internet is the netting at Sox Park? What the hell else could it be? Kyle... I really gotta lie down. Oh yeah, by the way, I also got you these. Flowers? Oh, Kyle, that's actually thoughtful. Thanks. Yeah, I found them in the front seat of Hannah's car. Did you know that if you add an S to her name, it's almost your name? Get off my stoop, Kyle. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump racks up two big wins with NAFTA and Brett Kavanaugh. Democrats vow reprisals. Haley bails out. Trump attacks protesters, calling them paid by George Soros. And a dire UN report puts coal into focus. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 623, October 4th. The FBI wrapped up its background investigation on Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh without contacting at least 40 potential character witnesses and corroborators about the allegations made against him by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez. Mitch McConnell rejected a request to have the FBI brief all senators, saying, quote, I believe it would be used to further delay this nomination. He also declined calls to make that report public. The pressure increased on Kavanaugh's nomination as more than 1,700 law professors signed on to a letter opposing that confirmation. The letter said the unprecedented and unfathomable demeanor of Judge Kavanaugh was disqualifying. 
Also, a group of 100,000 Christian churches called for Kavanaugh's nomination to be withdrawn, saying he, quote, exhibited extreme partisan bias and disrespect toward certain members of the committee. Retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, in a remarkable dissent, also said Kavanaugh should not be confirmed. And a former classmate at Yale said Kavanaugh, quote, Brett Kavanaugh stood up under oath and lied about his drinking and the meaning of words in his yearbook. James Roche added there's, quote, zero chance Ramirez lied about him exposing himself to her. A federal judge blocked Trump from ending temporary protective status for more than 300,000 immigrants from El Salvador, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Sudan. The judge ruled that those TPS recipients and their children would face irreparable harm and great hardship if they were to lose that protected status. And the International Court of Justice ruled that sanctions against Iran by the U.S. violated a 1955 friendship treaty that was signed by both countries. The U.N.'s highest court ordered the U.S. to ease the sanctions and not to tamper with humanitarian aid efforts. In response, the State Department said it was canceling the treaty. Day 624, October 5th. Brett Kavanaugh wrote that he, quote, might have been too emotional during a hearing last week in a last-minute editorial for the Wall Street Journal. Kavanaugh also promised to be, quote, an independent, impartial judge. The Senate voted 51 to 49 to advance his nomination. Lisa Murkowski was the lone Republican to vote no. She said the cloture vote was a mistake, adding that Kavanaugh is not the best man for the court at this time. Jeff Flake, however, said he would support Kavanaugh unless something big changes. Trump has offered to pay Mexico $20 million to deport migrants from their country in order to prevent them from reaching the U.S. And Vice President Mike Pence said China is attempting to manipulate American democracy without presenting evidence. Pence claimed China is engaging in, quote, a comprehensive and coordinated campaign to undermine support for Trump by using covert actors, front groups, and propaganda outlets to shift Americans' perception of Chinese policies. In related news, the Navy wants to put on a global show of force in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. China has been blocking off trade routes, claiming territorial rights in violation of international maritime law. The Justice Department indicted seven military intelligence officials for trying to hack into anti-doping agencies. Those agencies exposed Russia's state-sponsored doping scheme that resulted in bans for all Russian athletes from 2016 and 2018 Olympic Games. Four officials were expelled from Holland after Dutch officials caught them in the act. Day 625, October 6. Susan Collins, the final Supreme Court swing vote, said she would vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. Collins, who has never cast a decisive vote against hard-right Republican interests, attacked the confirmation process as, quote, in steady decline for more than 30 years. She also claimed that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's allegations fail to meet the more-than-likely-than-not standard. I do not believe these charges can fairly prevent Judge Kavanaugh from serving on the court. Trump also continues attacks on Dr. Ford, calling her claims a hoax funded by George Soros. He then mocked former Senator Al Franken for folding like a wet rag following allegations of sexual misconduct last year. Day 626, October 7th. Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court by a vote of 50 to 48 with one voting present and hurriedly sworn in just hours later. Democrats have vowed to investigate and impeach Kavanaugh if they win control of the House. Chief Justice John Roberts has apparently received more than one dozen judicial misconduct complaints against Kavanaugh, but so far has not yet referred those complaints to a judicial panel for investigation. Reddit has reported it found evidence of manipulation on its site. Russian trolls on social media were supporting Kavanaugh and attacking what they called a malignant feminism. Elsewhere, Fox News hired former White House aide Hope Hicks as their chief communications officer. She left the White House in February. Former Fox News executive Bill Shine took over her job. A coalition of voting rights activists has filed a federal lawsuit against Georgia's Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, 
for using what they allege is a race-based methodology to illegally remove 700,000 voters from the state's voter rolls. And Russia's Deputy Attorney General, who allegedly directed the foreign operations of Natalie Veskolinyaska, who met with officials at Trump Tower, died last week in a mysterious helicopter crash in Russia. The pilot of that helicopter was found with two bullet wounds to the head. Day 627, October 8th. A landmark report from the United Nations says the world has just 12 years to address climate change. The report warns that if concrete changes aren't made within a dozen years, worsening food shortages and wildfires, as well as climbing sea levels, could cause $54 trillion worth of damage. The Trump administration did not respond to the report. However, Trump did respond to the sexual misconduct allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, calling them a hoax and fabricated. Quote, so I've been hearing that now they're thinking about impeaching a brilliant jurist, a man that did nothing wrong, a man that was caught up in a hoax. He added, it was an insult to the American people. Voters have come to the conclusion it was a fraud. It was all made up. It was fabricated. Day 628, October 9th. Nikki Haley resigned from her post the United Nations. The high-profile departure of one of the few women in Trump's cabinet raised eyebrows. Haley was a former governor of South Carolina, had been an early and frequent critic of the president. However, Trump said he hoped Haley would return in a different role and said he would name her successor within the next two or three weeks. Haley had apparently told Trump six months ago that she wanted to leave the post. Trump wants to name his daughter to replace Haley. Trump said there is no one, quote, more competent in the world than Ivanka Trump for a role at the UN. Trump also apologized on behalf of our nation to Brett Kavanaugh, quote, for the terrible pain and suffering that he and his family endured during the confirmation process. Trump also falsely claimed that Kavanaugh was proven innocent and said that the confirmation process was riddled with lies and deception. Indicted Trump aide Rick Gates requested proposals in 2016 from an Israeli company to use social media to manipulate the election. That company, known as the Psy Group, wanted to use fake social media posts to target the delegates to the 2016 Republican National Convention and attack Ted Cruz. Another call for opposition research aimed at Clinton and her close allies. It is unclear if the Trump team used the company's services, but they came at the same time as Russia was ramping up its effort online to aid Trump. Trump said he would send federal authorities to Chicago to fight crime and urge the city to adopt more aggressive tactics like stop and frisk. Tr stop and frisk works, said Trump. The crime spree is a terrible blight on that city and will do everything possible to get it done. Violent crimes have actually fallen in the city of Chicago this year. And Trump said he had no plans to fire Rod Rosenstein. Rosenstein questioned using the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office and offered to wear a wire. Looking forward to being with him, said Trump. We'll be talking on the plane. I have a good relationship with him other than there's no collusion. Day 629, October 10th. Trump attacked Democrats in an article bearing his name in USA Today, claiming a Democrat win in November would bring, quote, suffering, misery, and decay. Trump claimed that the so-called universal health care system would mean the end of Medicare and further claimed Democrats were in favor of open border socialism. The truth is that the centrist Democratic Party is dead. The new Democrats are radical socialists who want to model America's economy after Venezuela. Meanwhile, Ford reports that Trump's trade war with China has cost the company $1 billion. The automaker may have to cut production of some models and may eliminate U.S. jobs as a result. Trump again claimed that the protesters at the Kavanaugh hearings were paid. In a tweet, Trump said, quote, The paid D.C. protesters are now really ready to protest because they haven't gotten their checks. In other words, they weren't paid. Screamers in Congress and outside were far too obvious, less professional than anticipated by those who are not paying the bills. Andrew Wheeler, the acting EPA administration head, apparently repeatedly retweeted and reposted racist content on Facebook and Twitter. Wheeler brushed off questions about that, claiming he didn't remember liking or retweeting the content. 
In related news, the Trump administration will remove a federal ban on summer sales of high ethanol gasoline. That would allow year-round sales of blends with up to 15% ethanol. That is a reward to Senator Chuck Grassley, who presided over Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. The EPA currently bans those blends in summer months because it creates epic pollution and smog. 51% of Americans opposed Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation of the Supreme Court, with just 40% supporting it. 91% of Democrats opposed his nomination. These are the Trump Diaries. This is Hell spoke to Eleanor Penny about the political landscape facing the British left. With Brexit looming next spring and the mounting threat of a global far-right coalition, is the planet inexorably changing? This is Hell with Chuck Mertz airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. The global white nationalist movement is on the rise, and liberalism is to blame. As we hear it, this is hell, our equal opportunity haters. We'll first take on those friggin' fascists, and then it's those lame liberals who caused the fascist problem in the first place. At least that's what this week's guests will argue. Our first guest this week is live from London. Writer, essayist, editor, poet, and broadcaster Eleanor Penny wrote the In These Times story, Steve Bannon's European Dream. Europe used to serve as a utopian vision for the left and a punching bag for the right. Now it's reversing. All these far-right uprisings we are seeing around the world, but especially here in the U.S. and in Europe, are part of a white nationalist project that is sweeping the globe. We'll be focusing on the rise of Europe's far-right and the debate that's taking place in Europe and the United States today over what Europeanness is. We'll learn the state of that debate and what it reveals about the current political environment that has fostered the rise of the far-right when we speak with Eleanor, who is a senior editor at Novara Media, and the online editor of Red Pepper Magazine. Eleanor hosts the New Statesman Politics podcast, The Sisterhood, and produces and hosts the poetry podcast, Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, which you can find at endoftheworldpodcast.com. Eleanor is a member of, I just had to add this in here, Eleanor is a member of Barbican Young Poets All Women Collective called Men Are Trash, and our conversation with Eleanor will seamlessly segue, apparently, supposedly, hopefully, into our second guest interview this week when we'll talk live from Brooklyn to the writer of politics, culture, sports, and technology, Aaron Timms, who posted the Baffler article, This Is Not a Blip, What's Wrong With What Liberals Say Is Wrong With the World. Really, don't worry about all the problems we face today, whether it's neo-Nazis or climate change or growing inequality. There's nothing to worry about because this is just a blip, just a moment, and everything will get back to normal any day now. At least that's what defenders of liberalism status quo want you and all of us to believe. The problem is that all these crises that liberalism is facing today have been around for a lot longer than a mere moment or just a blip. We've been dealing with them since the 2008 financial crisis at, at the least, and going back much further to when uh, this whole financialized, deregulated economy mess started back in the 1980s under President Reagan and continued under President Clinton in the 90s. But if you want only incrementalized reactions that never address any larger problems with the system as a whole, the kind of responses liberalism always offers, then you'll want to convince the public that we're just in a moment. We're in a blip. 
that's lasted anywhere from a decade to more than a generation. We'll discover how liberalism is at fault for the rise of the far right when we are joined by Aaron, who has written for the Sydney Morning Herald, Salon.com, The Daily Beast, The Guardian, The Outline, The Week, The Monthly, and the LA Review of Books. And you can find out more about Adam at Aaron Timms, that's with two M's, Aaron Timms. Dot .xyz that's his website aarontims.xyz I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's this is hell is Alex Jerry Noam Chomsky called this is hell sanity in talk radio so clearly and sadly Noam Chomsky's gone insane this is hell there's a battle over what Europeanness is, and that fight is having reverberations around the world as it ripples outward in a wave of global white nationalism. Here to get us caught up on the debate and what it means for everyone on the planet, not just Europe, live from London, writer, essayist, editor, poet, and broadcaster Eleanor Penny wrote the In These Times story, Steve Bannon's European Dream. Europe used to serve as a utopian vision for the left and a punching bag for the right. Now it's reversing. Welcome to This Is Hell, Eleanor. Hi there, Chuck. It's really great to be on. Eleanor is a senior editor at Novara Media and the online editor of Red Pepper Magazine. You can follow Eleanor on Twitter at Eleanor K. Penny. But most importantly, she hosts the New Statesman Politics podcast, The uh, Sisterhood, and she produces and hosts poetry podcast Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, which you can find at End of the World Podcast. Dot com. So you write, two years and a hundred political lifetimes ago, a UK prime minister offered a spurious referendum on EU membership to quell backbenchers and far-righters, causing trouble in the ranks. It was a disastrous game of electoral Russian roulette. And considering all of the media narrative here in the United States around anything to do with Russia, I wanted to start right there. Russian roulette. What Was, the, was this more political <laughs> suicide than anything caused by outside influences like, well, Russia? Because part of the debate, you know, here in the United States with the triumph of the right in getting Donald Trump and Trump in the White House is that it is illegitimate in some way. And I'm curious about the legitimacy that people in the UK believe Brexit has. Is, is, there, is the rise of the far right, is it illegitimate? So I think there are a couple of things to unpack here, because you're completely yeah. right. Um, it's to point out that in the UK, like in the US, there is this debate, because everyone, especially the um, liberal or corporate media who's still reeling in shock about, like, how could this possibly have happened? How could we not possibly have been able to foresee this? Um, therefore, you know, tracking that kind of, taking their shock and mapping that onto some presumed political reality of, well, this must be some kind of, like, foreign interloping interference that explains our inability to, like, actually talk to people. Obviously, I think that that is just, you know, inherent to corporate media. And there are, you know, questions around the legitimacy of the referendum, but those aren't about interference. They go much deeper than that. They're about um, the um, inordinate amount of um, uh, big money that was ploughed, not, you know, foreign money, like just regular UK domestic aristocrats and plutocrats uh, plowing money into the Leave campaign to uh, spread lies. And I think it's very odd that um, to, in the context 
of uh, the Brexit debate having completely cannibalized the entire UK political terrain, right? It's completely um, impossible to kind of, or it feels completely impossible to gain ground on any question of economics, of gender justice, of racial justice, of whatever, without confronting the big political question of like, what the hell happens in March 2019 when we career off the cliff of Brexit. In that context, it's really odd to um, remember that back in, you know, 1994, I think it was, when um, the UK Independence Party was uh, found, uh, founded, uh, not like just found under a rock, uh, like, although it feels like that. <laughs> um, uh, but like, you know, I think it's Will Davies, who's a um, writer at, um, and a lecturer at Goldsmiths University, has the line that... Um, only a few, only a handful of people uh, cared about the question of European membership, and all of them were in the Tory cabinet. Um, and so, this is the essential thing that we need to confront when we're talking about the realities of Brexit. Right? Um, to think of it not just as kind of a, a very practical economic problem of things like how will um, leaving the customs union affect our shipping industry or whatever, but also about um, a fascinating historical moment where a, a very technocratic question about um, the particular configuration of Britain's relationship to the rest of global capital um, has become a kind of, you know, a, a just a sort of, a symbolic question about, you know, nationhood and British nativism. Most people who voted leave um, have no idea about the structure of the European Union. That is something that has been said time and time again. But what hasn't been said time and time again is that most people who voted remain have no idea about the structure of the European Union. It's a mess of like 15 different, like incredibly maddeningly, complicatedly imbricated um, mini institutions and their offshoots and the trade treaties that they they agree. Um, and the debate was just not about that for 90% of the time. It was a proxy debate on uh, race. Yeah, and I want to get to that point. But you write that uh, a deceptively simple choice, in or out, fractured UK political culture into unlikely alliances, pro-remain leftists from reluctant to distinctly Europhile, found themselves allying with global conglomerates like Goldman Sachs, older generations of socialists and alter globalists uh, uh, skeptical of EU membership found themselves aligned with reactionary race baiters like Nigel Farage and uh, uh, (laughs) Boris Johnson. So uh, what does it say about UK politics when apparently all the left could choose from, all that anybody can choose from, was Goldman Sachs or Nigel Farage? Is is there a left <laughs> choice for the left? Was there a left choice for the left when it came to Brexit? Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I uh, made a video actually at the time. Um, I um, in uh, Navarra we had this um, uh, we had this like drawing a short straw um, process where we said, okay, who's going to go make a video about how we should vote? begrudgingly to remain in the European Union because we were trying to answer a question that wasn't being asked um, but a question that we would eventually have to confront which was the actual practical question about um, EU membership where um, I think the question that was being presented uh, to us was a question on you know immigration and race and all that kind of thing so it's hard to say whether or not there was a left 
um, answer because it's not quite sure. It's, it's not quite clear what the question was because purposefully, and that you know, I think we need to remember that this was um, uh, it was in many ways a purposeful obfuscation. Um, the uh, many different like symbolic and technocratic questions were bound up together um, to force. Uh, different alliances to fracture because I have to remember that this came at a very um, odd time for the UK left in that um, we were for once not in the doldrums of despair like there was actually a UK left at the time and um, this uh, was and continues to be a key a key wedge issue so I think it's um, when we say that you know there was no correct answer for, for the left. We shouldn't be naive about the way in which this was constructed such that a left response was impossible on the terrain laid out by, you know, an alliance between the Tory party and UKIP or the UKIP, as I once heard Noam Chomsky said, and that stuck with me because I think that's absolutely adorable. <laughs> I'm going to call it that forever. The UKIP. <laughs> Radio Free also heard new live music from Brandon James. The Chicago soul singer performed cuts from his 2017 LP, The Divine Collection. Produced by Ari Shellist in Studio A, this is James' brand new single, There She Goes.
Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.